We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. Hello and welcome to the Thrive Global podcast on iHeartRadio. My guest today is one of the most celebrated and powerful voices of science in the world, maybe even the universe. In fact, he's uniquely qualified to tell us what the chances are that he's got competition for that title outside our solar system. I'm talking, of course, about Neil deGrasse Tyson. He is the director of the world-famous Hayden Planetarium here in New York. He is an astrophysicist with the American Museum of Natural History. He is the host of the Emmy-nominated television show Star Talk. He was once named the sexiest astrophysicist alive by People magazine, and he even has an asteroid named for him, number 13,123. And he is the author of the just-published book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry. Neil, welcome to the Thrive Podcast. Uh, I, it's always wonderful to see you again and to, now to be a part of your universe. <laughs> <laughs> it's always great to see you and be part of your universe. So you dedicate the book to all those too busy to read a fat book, but who nevertheless seek a conduit to the cosmos. So what percentage of people who are in a hurry also seek a conduit to the cosmos? <laughs> I think people in a hurry are in a hurry because they lead an active life, probably not a boring life, an active life. And those people catch snippets of headlines and I think don't often get to sit down and bring them into context. And so I know people who've heard dark matter before or dark energy or exoplanet. These are, there's just words that float by, and they catch snippets of it. And I thought, let me snatch all of these from the air, put them under one coherent arc of story, and present this book to those people who are in a hurry. It's not a large book, but it's, it's highly curated for its mind-blowing content. And you can dip in, in between uh, changing the diapers and whatever else, and cooking the dinner or whatever else. You're waiting for a bus. You're in traffic. I narrated the audio book, so if you're in traffic, you could probably get through this in two days of traffic in Los Angeles, I think. <laughs> <laughs> it's a two-day book in Los Angeles traffic. Um, so so it's I'm a servant of people's curiosity that I know is harbored within them, but they don't have the occasion to express. I would like to recommend a couple of other ways for this book to be read. Okay. Uh, to put it on your nightstand. I'm a big believer in reading real books before you go to sleep. Mm. There's something wonderful about holding a book. Yes. And then if you um, get tired, you you can just drop it to the floor and it doesn't break. <laughs> and the book works even when it's never plugged in. Exactly. It works <laughs> even when it's run out of battery. And also I love the fact that uh, it puts all your problems in perspective, thinking of the cosmos. So at the mm -hmm. moment when you're about to go to sleep and you may be thinking of all the things that went wrong during the day or all the things you're worried about, suddenly you can read um, this book, Astrophysics for People in a Hurry, and remember That, as you have said once, we are a speck of dust in the cosmos. Right, right. And that can be depressing for some people because they want to think of themselves as more than that. But sometimes the truth, while it can hurt, 
has a has a positive side to it, if you can imagine, <laughs> in this context. So the you know the atoms of our bodies are traceable to stars that have manufactured those atoms in their cores through thermonuclear fusion. This is a this is go, going on every day, every moment of every day of every star in the universe. And some of those stars that make these heavy elements explode. They scatter this enrichment: the carbon, the nitrogen, the oxygen. These are the ingredients of life itself. They're scattered across the galaxy in rich gas clouds whose subsequent generations of star systems contain these ingredients, enough of these extra ingredients to make planets, and in, on at least one planet to make people. So it's not just a figurative truth. It is a literal truth that we are stardust. And on top of that, I would add that you can now think of ourselves not as something as little as dust— but it's something as great as the fact that while we are alive in the universe, the universe is alive within us. And that's an almost spiritual revelation brought to you by modern astrophysics to learn what our actual place is in the universe. Hmm. I love it. So you grew up in New York City, a place with so many buildings and so much light pollution, you can barely see the stars on most nights. So what drew you to the stars? Oh, yeah, I would have never done astrophysics if were it not for the actual night sky projected on the dome of my local planetarium. And in New York City, that's the Hayden Planetarium. That was my first night sky when I was nine years old. Thousands of stars came out, and I just thought it was a hoax. I say this often. I, I thought I'd seen the night sky from the Bronx. It has 12 stars in it. And, and so this is this can't be real. I'll go along with it. I'll, I'll smile w- along with the program. But later I would learn, of course, that it, it was a representation of the real night sky. And to this day, I'm, I'm almost embarrassed to say, to this day, when I go to mountaintops and these spectacular vistas where it's just you and the universe and nothing between the two of you, I look up and I think to myself, Hey, that reminds me of the Hayden Planetarium. <laughs> and how amazing that you are nine years old yeah. in the Hayden Planetarium, and now you are the director. Is there a picture of you at nine years yeah, old? Yeah, there's some pictures. But the, so I, I tell that to people in New York, but it, it makes, a lesser, makes up a lesser story in New York. No one cares. It's, it's more of a small-town story. Small-town kid goes away, does good, comes back. I say that here. No one, yeah, go on. And your point is, <laughs> so fewer people tend to be interested in that fact, but it is nonetheless true. I was deeply uh, influenced by the educators and scientists who, because when you're a kid and you have a first visit to a to a museum, you, you all, all you do is look at the exhibits and then you go home. But if you come back, then you learn that there are other things. There are programs that are offered. There are you know, educational programs. There are expeditions. There are things that continue your interest if the museum is well run and they've thought this through, as was the American Museum of Natural History that contains the Hayden Planetarium. So I kept going back and taking classes, and I would see these educators that had such a facility with their knowledge, and they just made me want to learn more. And I said, you know, if I'm ever an educator one day, that's the kind of educator I want to be. And that scientist who had such command of the content, it was just, it was stupefying that a person could ever know that much about something as vast as the universe. And I said, if I'm ever an astrophysicist successfully, that's the kind of astrophysicist I want to be. And so they set the model for me of what kind of life I would then assemble for myself and how to line up classes that you choose to take in high school and in college. And so now that I'm director, 
my only obligation to myself is that I serve the next generation of future scientists the way educators and scientists have served me. Mm. So let's talk about the state of science in America right now. Mm -hmm. In April, uh, you tweeted, show me a nation with a science-hostile government, and I'll show you a society with failing health, wealth, and security. Are you worried that we're slipping into a science-hostile territory? Yeah, again, it's a free country. So if you want to be science-hostile, go right ahead. But if you're science-hostile and you rise to power and influence what role science plays in our civilization because you don't know what science is and how and why it works, that's simply sowing the seeds of the dismantling of an informed democracy. And when laws are passed, you want them to be based on objective truths that can cross the belief systems of what is a pluralistic country. And if you think science is one thing, but it's not, and you create a law based on what you thought it was true, but it was not, there's some failure in the educational system leading up to that. These are full-grown, college-educated adults saying these things and thinking these things. So we got to go back and fix it. Otherwise, we'll just fade. You know, if you don't want to fix it, by the way, if you if if you don't want to vote for science support, and you know fully what science is, that's your prerogative as a citizen. My issue is if you vote that way, and you do not know what science is and how and why it works, because you've been handed something else that's false that you think is true. So, uh, I, well, I care that people come up with informed decisions, informed policy, informed politics about whatever it is you want to make happen when you vote. That's all I care about. At that point, vote for who you want. But know that if you're going to vote for non-support of science and technology, you are compromising the future health, wealth, and security of this nation. Just do it self-aware of that, and then it's a free country. That's your choice. But given that that's where we are right now, and fixing the education system isn't going to prevent what is happening right, right now. now. It's a thir- be a 30-year delay. Yes, it will be a 30-year delay. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, what can those of us who are worried about the place of science in the current administration uh, do? I wish I knew. <laughs> 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 what you can do, I think, is, and I've seen this happen. I, I, I've seen this happen. Um, someone reviewed this book for Salon saying uh, it was very critical of science and accusing scientists of scientism uh i don't that may be a new word to some people um <laughs> you know if you put an ism on it then it's something you can protest against and it was very critical and legions of people wrote in in the comment thread just calling them out saying you must really not understand what's going on here so if you know what science is and how it works maybe you have an obligation or a duty to teach the people who otherwise are speaking in ways that reveal deep ignorance about uh, what it is and how, what its role is or should be in the society going forward. And we live in a democracy that's also capitalist. So I presume you don't want to die, and you don't want to die poor. What are the two best ways to assure that? Invest in science and technology. In fact, you actually um, said that on Twitter. You said that the fastest way to make America weak again is to cut science funding, and that cutting education funding is a way to make America stupid. So clearly this is aimed at our chief Twitter stormer, Donald Trump. Now that we are... Well, I never well, mentioned his name, but if you see a similarity, okay, <laughs> to, to, the, to the structure of the sentences, but it's what I wanted the tweets to be able to live before, during, or after a Trump administration. They're just 
fundamentally true statements about the relationship between science and our economy and science and our health and science and our security. Sure, they were, of course, prompted by the developments in the White House budget as they were first put forth. But I would like to think those tweets transcend any local political wins. They absolutely do transcend. Mm -hmm. But from your cosmic perspective, how is our president doing? (laughs) What what grade would you give him? Here's what it is. He's fundamentally a businessman. All right. So I'm thinking you run a business, you know you shouldn't eat your seed corn. You know you have to do R&D to assure the survival of your company going forward. And it's always a tension between the money you put in for the current product versus the money you put in for the future product. And I understand that there's tension there, and that's where sort of wise management kicks in. And you, when you would up one and lower the other, depending on the needs of the moment. If the president saw science for its real value and role in making America great again, I think he would then think of that support as a as a part of the R&D of the corporation called the USA. And this would be in the language that a business person could relate to. And I don't have a problem speaking on those terms. So it ought to be easy to convince him of the importance of these elements of what can assure a safe and future uh, company called the United States of America. And if not, then I, I don't. Then I have no way to reach him. If that won't it's kind of ironic because in a speech back in February, he, Trump talked about the marvels we can achieve if we simply set free the dreams of our people, including cures to illnesses that have always plagued us, and how we can set American footprints on distant worlds. So there's a contradiction so there's between well, there's, that and there's the There's a lot of contradiction. Yeah, that, that you can spend 10 hours talking about contradictory uh, statements made in and out of the administration. So, 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 but th- what you're saying is those words did, in fact, come out of his mouth. And so that means there's a place one can appeal to. If you felt this way, here's how you can enable it. And so, and one thing about bringing coal jobs back and things, at some point you have to recognize that if that's how voters want you to do it, no matter what it does to the environment, then you do it, all right? Everyone's beating him on the head, but he got elected by people that wanted him to do that. So that's that's not a surprise, all right? That's politics. So let's grow up and recognize that fact. Okay, so now that we recognize it, you now ask, all right, um, is this industry going to take us 20, 30, 50, 100 years into the future? The answer to that is no. There are whole other industries that the rest of the world is working on. These are the green renewable energy industries that will be the future employment of nations that are energy-producing nations. If we do not participate in that, we will get aced out of an entire frontier of job creation in the future. At some point, somebody's got to kick in that understanding. And then you'll phase one in and phase one out. This is where wise governance comes in. It's always a mixture of satisfying some but putting something for the future, dissatisfying others but not continually, just momentarily. This is the sausage that gets made in Congress, and, and you want it to taste good at the end, okay? But, but to, for that to happen requires visionary leadership. And also education, as you've said yes. again and again. But That's the, the easy com- answer that yes. I have to go to. This is the go-to answer. Yes. <laughs> but during the campaign, Trump declared that he loved the poorly educated and maybe that that explains where we are now? Well, so I would say, I, I don't know what he means by that. Let me tell you what I hope he meant. He loves the people who the educated people typically forget about or discount. 
as a role as participants in our democracy and in this country that we love. So I don't think he meant, I love it that you're not educated. <laughs> I'm going to hope that's not what he meant. And so, um, yeah, I mean, I'm an educator. So, so if I could just tell you this quickly, when I get letters from parents this, that and their kid is getting straight A's and they're on the honor roll and this, and they say, I want my kid to meet you because they're the best in their class and they're best in their, I say, I'm thinking, yes, I'll still meet the kid, but I'm thinking the kid doesn't need me. They're already at the top of their class. This is a waste of both of our time. I want the parent whose kid is maybe failing out of school, who doesn't have the interest in learning, who who is struggling with even maybe basic math, bring me that kid. That's the kid I want to talk to because I might make a difference in that kid's life in a way this other kid who's already the teachers are writing glowing recommendations to go to to the college of their choice. You know, you think I'm only going to meet your kid if you can tell me how brilliant your kid is. And that makes me less want to meet your kid. Yeah, I'm saying I'll say that like right now publicly. Okay, I've never actually said that publicly, but I'm I'm telling because I do meet the kids. But my thought is, why are we doing this? There are too many other kids who are struggling who might be dead or worse in the street without some kind of intervention. Amazing. So, so in fact, that would be great. Anybody listening who wants their kid who is not interested in science to meet Neil <laughs> to deGrasse Tyson, this is your chance. We'll pick one of those children no. to meet Neil. But just for example, there's an organization uh, called, uh, it rhymes with, with, um, with your organization, it's called Strive, and it's an organization that um, helps uh, prisoners who are freshly on parole or freshly released from prison to give them work habits that they can reintroduce themselves into the workplace. So if you disagree with your boss, you don't harm them. You recognize that these are commands that you must follow, that all the rest of us follow. So these are um, so it's a trying to get people who would otherwise be completely forgotten and discounted in this world. And, and I, I have energy for that. When I was in college, I tutored uh, prisoners in Walpole State Penitentiary in Massachusetts, some on death row where they didn't really have hope, but they just, but others who wanted to get their GED so that when they got out and reformed their lives, they could actually uh, get a job and make a good, decent living. So some scientists have said that they've already seen the effects with talented graduate students and top international researchers electing not to come to the United States. Have you seen this happening in your field? Yes. Yeah, so what happens is it's it's slow because we're still coasting on investments that have been made in previous decades. But what will happen is there was a day where the smartest kids in the world would come here as immigrants. And by the way, I don't know if you knew this. So you go from 1900 to today. The average fraction of immigrants in the United States has been about 10% over the last 120 years, about 10%. And you do that per decade-by-decade decade census. And you add in even the illegal immigrants. It's about 10%. Now ask, the Nobel Prize has been given since 1900. The Nobel Prize in the sciences won by Americans. What percentage of them were immigrants? One-third of American Nobel Prizes in the sciences have been won by immigrants from a population that is 10% of the total. Amazing. So... In our history, the smartest, most motivated people came to the United States because we were a source of opportunity. So what happens if we're no longer that opportunity and other nations rise up? Let's look at China. We would get the best students from China, and they would stay. 
and bring their brilliance to us. China is rising up. We are plateauing and even fading. And China today has the largest radio telescope in the world. If aliens were communicating us with the and their signal was in the din of cosmic noise, their telescope will pick it up first, not ours. So the first people that the aliens will talk to will be the Chinese. Just FYI. So what happens is we get fewer students coming because we don't we don't represent the opportunities. Plus we're immigrant hostile. And not only that, even if you do come here. The rise of opportunities back home are greater than ever before. So now we educate you and then we lose you. And so, yeah, this is the unraveling of all that we've so uh, strongly built uh, in this world as a country. And that's why it's kind of amazing that in a phone call with astronauts on the International Space Station, Trump asked when we're going to put a man on Mars. And the response was sometime in the 2030s. And then he replied that he wanted to speed it up and make it happen during my first term or at worst <laughs> during my second term. That was funny. You got to admit, maybe he's being charming and cute there. Um, I know it may be hard to compliment Trump if you're totally anti-Trump, but that that was a, f- a fun exchange. The 2030s, of course, uh, that goal was not is not established by astronauts who don't control policy. It's, it's established by the president and Congress. So for the president to ask the astronauts, when are we going to land on Mars? <laughs> that was a little weird, okay? Dude, you're in control of this, okay? You plus Congress. That's what I would have said. I would have said it politely, of course. But this 2030 horizon was, in fact, established by uh, Obama and by George W. Bush. Where And I was on commissions that helped establish the reality of what a timeline would be. So my problem is you have a president committing in the 2030s, well... That would be under the watch of a president yet to be named, to be named later, on a budget not yet established. So it's almost too easy to start saying what will happen in 20 years when it's not under your watch. President Kennedy said, we'll go to the moon, return safely to Earth before the decade is out. Had he served two terms, not not an unrealistic uh, expectation, we would have gotten most of that way under his watch. So he could have put in the political capital his social capital to make that happen and to push it through. So if you're not president when we're doing it, you can say whatever the hell you want. And that doesn't mean it's going to happen. It's got to be embedded in the wishes and the needs of the electorate as well as those who we elect to represent us in Congress. We are now going to take a quick break to share a sleep tip brought to you by our sponsor, Sleep Number, because a good sleep routine is the foundation for thriving. Today's sleep tip is to keep a journal on your nightstand and before bed, write down a list of what you're grateful for. It's a great way to focus your mind on the good things in your life, big and small, rather than on the running list of unresolved problems that seem to take center stage once our head hits the pillow. And recent studies have shown that this type of gratitude exercise will help you reduce stress and sleep better. And that's one more thing to be grateful for. This sleep tip was brought to you by the Sleep Number 360 Smart Bed that adjusts to you. Learn more about it at sleepnumber.com slash thrive. You recently got in a feud with a rapper. Of, <laughs> of you don't a, miss anything, Ariane. I'm, <laughs> now, well, now, now I'm worried. I'm, 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 now I'm, I'm, I'm worried. Complete, I'm a complete groupie, now as you have I'm seen. <laughs> So, I mean, I am. What can I do? 
You're my secret obsession. No longer <laughs> secret. So you recently got in a feud with this rapper over whether the earth is flat. So I leave it to the listeners to guess which side you're on. <laughs> but did you ever think when you were starting out that uh, one day you'd be involved in the same debate as Galileo and Copernicus yeah. in 2017? <laughs> and then the rapper released a track dissing you. Have you listened to yes, it? Yes, I have listened to it. Now, I have a nephew who also raps, and I got him to give me the, the, the diss of the diss track. So that's out there as well. Oh, wow. We need that on Thrive Global. (laughs) Absolutely. We need competing rap. The rap battles for the shape of the earth. Um, And so just to be clear, I avoid debating people on any topic at all. The reason why I jumped in the middle of that was in his Twitter stream, and by the way, he had millions of Twitter followers, he's touting the flat earth, and he's saying he's invoking physics and math (laughs) formulas to prove that that's the case. And the moment he said that, I said, those are fighting words right there. No, and I got to jump in. Okay, so then I jumped in and said, here's the formula that you use. Here's how you apply that formula, and here's the result. And the result is not flat. Here's this other statement you made. He said from, from Bear Mountain, 60 miles north of Manhattan, there's a mountain there. If you take a picture of towards New York City from that mountain, you can see Manhattan. And he's saying... The only way you can see Manhattan is it's flat because the curvature of the earth should hide Manhattan behind the horizon. So I said, well, here's the formula and here's <laughs> what you calculate. And the curvature of the earth at 60 miles at that altitude of the mountain hides 150 feet of earth behind its horizon. 150 feet. How many stories is that of a building? It's 10 feet per story. It's a 15-story building. You look at the photo of Manhattan – you don't see any buildings shorter than 15 stories. <laughs> but there's so many other buildings. Tall, this is Manhattan, people. You know, most buildings that you care about and think about are taller than 15 stories. So that's what the photo revealed. So I said, the very evidence you are citing for a flat Earth is the evidence for a round Earth. And so that's why I got into it. And then he did the diss rap, and I got the double diss rap. I was on Larry Wilmore's show, did a mic drop. Go Google Tyson and mic drop. It'll go straight there. And so anyhow, but I don't, I, gen- I, don't, I don't generally debate people. If an argument lasts more than five minutes, both sides are wrong. Both it's sides are wrong. Yes, it's an but, old saying. But the truth is uh, rarely in the middle, right? It's often on one side or the other. No, truth can be in the middle. And that's often why people have so much more fun polarized and arguing with each other than finding where the truth can and should be in, in the middle if that's where it is. That's right. But when it comes to the earth being flat, no, we the got earth this one. is not yeah. in the middle, right? The, the, yeah. the truth is not Oh, no, in no. The middle. So I just saw the comedian Sinbad, and he was uh, commenting, maybe both sides are right, because maybe the earth is a cube. <laughs> and so on any side of the earth, it's flat. But you can go, and I see, you know, I never thought of that. Let's investigate. <laughs> <laughs> So let's end with your relationship with technology. When you filled out our Thrive questionnaire, you said that instead of taking pictures of things, you like to see things with your own eyes and that experiencing a real thing is better than seeing it on a three-inch screen. Yes. So, so many people, though, have their heads buried in those little screens, which is nearly the perfect opposite of looking up into the cosmos. Yeah, they look down even. Yes. Right. Right. So what do we do? There seems to be a huge opportunity cost here. So uh, let me let me play both sides of this fence for the moment. And I can do that because I don't uh, my personal jury is still out. If you're concerned about this, as am I, 
what would we have been saying back in the day when writing was invented? We, you can see the critique at the time. It was, writing, this is a bad idea. What We will lose our ability to remember things because now all you have to do is write it down and recite it later. This is bad. We should get rid of it. Okay? So it was bad because it was new. And if you came from the previous generation where all stories were remembered and you valued that, you were not in the position to value new things that could rise up from the fact that you can now write things down. So I don't want to be that guy who was saying the youngins today <laughs> and their, their whippersnappers and their habits and they'll just be the death of civilization. I don't want to be that guy. Maybe looking down and not up removes their, their love of what could be above their heads, the universe. Maybe that's taken out. But they're actually communicating with a far broader vast of people than we ever imagined we could graduating school. When you and I graduated high school and college, there were people you would never see again. Close friends, you would never know how to find them. Where would they be in the world? And you would wonder. That's why we had these yearbooks. Oh, I wonder what they're doing. That next generation doesn't have to wonder. It is at their fingertips every day of the week, and they have gain access to it by looking down. And they will create a new world. They're not old enough yet. That generation, they're 25, 30 at the oldest. They're not old enough to run corporations or to be heads of state or senators even. So maybe when that day comes, they will bring the fact that looking down at this three-inch screen, communicating with their network of friends, even people call friends that they've never met just because they like reading what they post, that when they take over Congress, oh my gosh, how small the world will become because they'll all be friends with everyone else. And that's a different world, but I don't necessarily fear it. So here's why I fear it, two reasons. I mean, I love your celebration of technology. I wouldn't be here without technology. You That's know, the right. You, can, you cut your teeth on that. would not have been invented. Thrive Global is totally dependent on technology. But here are my two concerns. One is that if you believe, as I do, and I think you believe too, that we all have a place in us, you know, that we are not just a collection of chromosomes, that we have a place of wisdom, strength, peace, you want to call it the soul, whatever you want to call it, something that is uh, bigger than uh, the sum total of of what's going to be buried when we die, (laughs) then it's much harder to connect with that part when we are constantly occupied, when our attention is constantly consumed and also, my second point is that a lot of great discoveries, famously Newton um, observing the, the apple falling, but many others, happen during moments of downtime, moments of quiet, the modern equivalent of being in the shower. So what happens to those moments if we're constantly consumed by looking down? So now my other side of the fence, see, I, I said I, that I'm on both sides here, so I couldn't help think. So let's go back to 17, you know, 65, when Newton comes up with his theory of gravity. And so the apple falls. And he, now, so, suppose he was looking at his smartphone <laughs> instead of watching the apple fall. Right. We would have never had the theory of gravity. Exactly. <laughs> so, Jay settled, mic drop. <laughs> so uh, here's a little saying I, I, I learned recently that I pro- it's probably mostly true, if not 100% true. That if you want to be more creative, be less productive. Mm. We don't want that to be true, but it kind of really is. 
You don't say, well, I got my 100 emails done today, and I got this, and I took out the laundry, and I got the dry cleaning, I walked the dog, and I, aren't I productive? Well, at any, were you, at any time, were you creative? This is the downtime where you're sitting just reflecting on what, not only what is, because that's the foundation of the thought, but what can be. And creativity is that bridge between what is and what can be. So you're right. It's not just that you have this device you're looking at and you're communicating with your friends. It's also the gaming industry. What would have been downtime for you, just contemplating infinity, you are playing a game, a video game. This is, you know, young boys have this affliction especially. And so will we miss some truly creative discovery simply because people are being distracted, entertained, sure, but really distracted from creativity with this infusion of technology in our lives. And the test will be, will that generation be capable of creating the next technology in this world? Or have we ossified ourselves by creating technology so tantalizing that people who interact with it have no creativity to further advance the technology itself? Wow, what a scary question. And it's also relevant to the reasons why so many people today have such a hard time sleeping. As you know, Neil, I'm a sleep I know sleep your book. Well, I got your book is at our bedside. <laughs> so the sleep revolution so is good. So I think the fact now, that... Now, how come on the cover you're not asleep? You're sitting there not asleep. Oh, you're I thought you were going there. to say, how come you're not on the cover? We can, <laughs> we can change that when the paperback comes out. We want the sexiest astrophysicist alive <laughs> on the cover. Posing on the bed. Right, right. I'm just wondering, you know, you should, on this paperback, put yourself asleep on that one. And we'll, we'll okay, deal. But, so here's my question. Do you sleep with your phone by your bed? Uh, only to charge it, but otherwise I don't care that okay, it's by my bed. Okay, but you no longer have that excuse because I just gave you a charging station that looks like a phone bed. It can live outside your bedroom. And this you allows can... the phone to go to sleep too, yeah, is what you're saying. Yeah, the phone goes to sleep. There is a little blankie so you can oh, tuck your phone so in. You can say goodnight to your phone so your phone can charge while you are recharging fully. Oh, okay. So, right, I don't, it, it's there just because I charge it, but. Of course, I have other places to charge the phone. Oh, here's something else. I, I need the phone to wake me up as an alarm. Oh, what about if I give clock. you an alarm clock? I would, I would use $32 it. at Pottery Barn. They still have alarm clocks? Is that still a thing? That's a thing? This, I don't yeah, believe it's a you. thing. No, I, I I'm, I'm going to send you a better one. I don't believe you. There's an alarm clock. So the final, final, final question is yeah. let's settle this Pluto thing. Just Once get over it. No, no, don't all. get me started. You've been vocal about knocking Pluto out of our top shelf of solar system planets, but mm-hmm. just so I don't get angry letters and tweets from the fearsome pro-Pluto lobby, mm-hmm. I'll play devil's advocate. Okay. Why can't Pluto be a planet? Can't it get a pop culture exemption because it's been a part of our lives for so long? It's Please, a- <laughs> Neil. You want to grandfather it in. Yeah. 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 I mean, we understand scientifically it's not accurate, et cetera, but just a pop culture exception. You see, we know so much about it that the grandfather... See, for, for me, grandfathering is... Uh, we like you in spite of this. So, But look at what we've learned about Pluto. More than half of its volume is ice. If it were where Earth is now, it would heat from the sun would evaporate that ice, and it would grow a tail. Pluto's orbit crosses the orbit of Neptune. No other planet crosses anybody. That's no kind of behavior for a planet, <laughs> crossing the orbit of Neptune on its way around the sun. Planets don't have tails. Comets have tails. Comets cross orbits of other planets. Do you know our moon 
has five times the mass of Pluto. Do you realize this? Do you know that Pluto's moon has five moons? This biggest moon, Charon, when they, Charon does not orbit Pluto. They both orbit their common center of gravity, which is sitting outside of Pluto in the middle of space. I, you know, I think Pluto is happier as a dwarf planet because it's one of the, it's like the king of the Kuiper belt of frozen objects. So it went from being the puniest planet to being king. I think it's happier there. I want to thank you so much for this absolutely fascinating conversation. Thank you, Ariana. My chat with Neil was so fascinating, we needed two episodes to get it all in. Join us next time when we dive into the inspiration behind Neil's book, what he's been up to recently, and how he feels about once being labeled the world's sexiest astrophysicist. And be sure to subscribe to the Thrive Global podcast with iHeartRadio on your favorite podcast app and stay tuned to thriveglobal.com and iHeartRadio for updates on more episodes. And in the meantime, go to thriveglobal.com for tips to start thriving today. We are grateful to have our friends at Sleep Number sponsoring the Thrive Global podcast. The Sleep Number bed adjusts on each side, so it works for both you and your partner. Experience the Sleep Number bed exclusively at one of their 550 stores nationwide. Check them out at sleepnumber.com slash thrive.